We're going to think a little bit more about change. And we're going to use the story, the next part of the story of Nehemiah. For those of you who are joining us for the first time tonight, uh, over the years, over many centuries, I have been preaching through the Bible. Uh, every uh, half year or term or whatever, I switch from the Old Testament back to the New Testament, wherever I got to before. And we're in a book of Nehemiah. But I want to show you a couple of uh, cartoons. This story that we're going to look at today, this part of the story, is about change. And it's about hope. It's about a group of people who have lost hope. And I love this cartoon, uh, which speaks of hopelessness. And yet, and yet, a little bit of hope. And what can change when hope gets hold how do we help and inspire hope? Change is, is uh, for, the, for, for older members of our community is a word that uh, brings shivers up the spine because we think, ah, I can't cope with change. For younger members of the community, we think we like change, but in reality, and I've learned over the years that nobody likes change, not even the most hippest, youngest person. Everybody wants things the way they expect them to be. Another cartoon, I uh, don't care how you feel, I hate change, says the caterpillar to the butterflies. How do we change? Two questions that we're going to try and help. The first one is this, how do we help those who feel defeated change? How do we help change in people who feel nothing can change? And people who feel like that first cartoon, that, that the world is, is dark and broken, situations in their life they've become so used to and so accepting of that they can't change. How can we be people who inspire and bring about change? How can we uh, be the uh, midwives of change? And that's really the main part of this story in Nehemiah. But the second part that we can use to apply to ourselves is other ways in which we can help ourselves change, in which we can cooperate with the Spirit of God. So that's where we're going to go. So we're going to look at the story of Nehemiah in the second half of chapter 2, change where it feels hopeless. I'm just going to tell you the story again using the Scripture and bring you up to speed if you've not been with us before. These, all these talks are, are available as podcasts. Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, they're all available on YouTube, uh, on our YouTube site. They're all available on our website. But just to bring you up to speed, Nehemiah uh, is a guy who uh, lives many, many hundreds of miles away from uh, Jerusalem uh, in the 400-odd uh, years before Christ. And uh, he is uh, living, uh, the situation is that about 100 years prior to that, over 100 years prior to that, Jerusalem and the temple uh, had been overrun, ransacked, and destroyed. A little bit like our crooked pub here in the West Midlands. Something odd has gone on, something that doesn't quite smell correct, and it's gone. And we, a few years ago, we began to look at Ez, the book of Ezra. And Ezra is, um, the, the, almost Ezra is in Nehemiah. Some people think they're one book. They certainly just follow on and they overlap and they intersect. And we began to look in Ezra how under Zerubbabel, the people return and they start to rebuild the walls. And then Ezra comes and they start to rebuild the temple. 
But a few uh, 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 decades have passed, and it's all gone into disrepute, and the walls have been broken down again. Now, walls are significant for a city uh, in ancient cultures because the walls are the things that protect you at night from robbers. It's a bit like your back garden. If you uh, lose a fence in the... um, in a storm, or, or, or somebody breaks down a wall, you feel vulnerable, and you particularly feel vulnerable at night. And a city without walls is vulnerable. It's vulnerable to, to, to raiders. It's vulnerable. And therefore, a city that has got used to having no walls is a city that is basically powerless. It's weak. The people are oppressed. That's affecting their worship in the temple quite probably. They are probably um, not as confident Because at any point, somebody can just march in and take stuff. So this is a broken down community. But this is not where Nehemiah lives. This is Nehemiah lives hundreds of miles away. This is the land of his great-grandparents. He's probably never been there. But it's the root of his faith. Because the temple is symbolic of the presence of God. And so his faith, though he's never been there is connected to this place. And this place is an embarrassment. And he gets to hear of it. Some guys come from there and they tell him uh, what's gone on, that the walls are broken down and the people are are, 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 are oppressed. And uh, it's a disgrace. Because they haven't had the courage or the energy or the hope to rebuild. And Nehemiah is affected by, this is all in our previous talks, forgive me for just recapping, but we need to get to what we're going to bring out of it. We need to understand where we were. He's affected by this. He weeps and he turns to God and he, for, for four months he prays. And we, in our first session on this, we looked at that prayer and what he prays. He doesn't just pray it for one day. He prays it again and again. And he has a particular job. He's quite an important slave. He is a slave right close to the emperor. Uh, uh, this is now part of Persia. The Persian Empire is stretched for hundreds of miles. It includes where Jerusalem is. But he's in the very heart of it, the court of the the, the king. And uh, he goes in, having prayed, and he takes the wine, which was his job, uh, to the king. Now, I've really struggled to say this name, uh, Art. And I have now a phobia about saying, let's just call him Art. He takes this thing to King. I know lots of you know, it's a very famous name of of kings, but I can't pronounce it. He takes his, uh, into the king. And um, he's unable to hold it in. He's sad. And the king, uh, who clearly cares for him, says, what can I do for you? And we talked about the last time, we talked about how if I was Nehemiah, I'd send, will you send an army and, and, destroy all the enemies and rebuild the temple. But he doesn't. He says, send me. And he then says to the king, will you give me some letters so that I have permission to ask for help and safety to rebuild the walls and to reestablish a place of security and safety. And he acknowledges that this is a miracle. We'll see why, again, it's a particular miracle that the king says yes. The king says yes, you can go and rebuild the walls. So this is where we pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 2. There is another character, some more characters, Sanballat. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Who knows? 
Most people believe that he's the governor of the area. So he's the guy in charge of the, the, the region in which Jerusalem is. And Jerusalem is in a small little area called Judah. But he's probably in charge of the whole of the former area that used to be, I forget, don't worry if you've forgotten all of this, but it used to be a much bigger country called Israel, and then it divided into two. The bigger country carried on being called Israel and a smaller country called Judah, and I've likened it to being England and Wales, and Judah is a little, rumply little place like Wales, and uh, I know, just to annoy you, and... Um, so this guy is probably the, the, the ruler of England and Wales, and Jerusalem is in this uh, little uh, uh, spot, uh, St. David's. You know, it's just a little place. kind of looks nice, but it, it's not very significant. That's probably who this guy is. Now, that is this, this bigger area gets to be called, really, Samaria, which if you remember your Jesus stuff in the Gospels, you remember that there were Samaritans. It's the bigger area than just the land around Jerusalem. Now, this guy, is he an Israelite? Is he a person of faith or not? Well, we're not totally sure, but we do know that he gives his kids uh, names that, associate, that, that involve Yahweh. So he gives his, na- his kids a Jewish names. So he's probably at least sympathetic or maybe believing. So he maybe considers himself a follower of God because of the names he gives his children. He's called the Horonite. We're not quite sure exactly what that means, but probably it means that he himself has come from a little place north of Jerusalem. So just in Judah, uh, near Samaria, but he's local, but he's in charge. Well, that's Sambala. Then there's another guy called Tobiah. Tobiah is probably his assistant. He's probably in charge of Wales. He's probably just in charge of the smaller area of Judah. And uh, he's called an Ammonite, which means he comes from Ammon, which is not a place where the Israelites lived. So his family heritage uh, would appear to be not a follower of Yahweh, but Tobiah is a Jewish name. So once again, he probably has sympathies. He's probably part of faith in some shape or form. Now, what am I going on about? Why am I wittering on about these two guys? They're going to be big figures in, in Nehemiah over the next few sessions. But for this moment, I want to draw your attention to what the verse says. They were disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So these are the guys in charge. They're under the Persian king, King Art, and... Um, They're disturbed that this guy has turned up to rebuild the walls because he cares about the people. Now, why are they disturbed? Their job is to look after these people. Why are they worried about it? It may be that they're upset because there's an assumption that they haven't been caring properly, and they're thinking, well, we're doing a perfectly good job. How are you? Why are you coming here to complain? That could be the reason. It could be that they feel threatened, that they've got used to being able to oppress these people and get them to do what they want, that they've got used to having this weak group of people. And there was an advantage to them in oppressing them. Or it could even be that they, like we come to see in John's gospel when Jesus talks about the Samaritans, it could be that they had even come to their own belief that the temple wasn't important 
and that God was to be worshipped elsewhere. And therefore Jerusalem was finished, it was done, it was over. Whatever it is, Nehemiah tells us about these two guys and then he parks it and he goes on and he says this, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there, why does he do that? He's going to rebuild the walls but he stays there for three days, he just waits and he says, I set out during the night with a few others. After three days, I set out and I'd not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there were no mounts. I didn't go on my great big horse at the King Artaxes. Artaxes? Artaxerxes. I used to be able to say that, but I lost it this morning. Riding a bike, I fell off it. Artaxerxes. It may be, he's giving him those horses, but he doesn't go on, he doesn't go on a big show. Why? There's no hype. I really like Nehemiah. He hasn't going to come, he hasn't come and said, I'm going to sort you out, look at my big horses. He doesn't uh, come straight in after 30 minutes and say, look, I am the saviour. He does not want to create huge expectations. And the particular thing I like, and uh, I don't think I'm reading too much into this, is there is a problem with leaders sometimes. Very often Christian leaders, I've been around a long time, I've seen too much of it. Very often political leaders. And what happens is we say, we're going to do this, and everybody gives us a big round of applause because we're going to do this. And we get praise for the thing we say we're going to do. And Nehemiah doesn't do that because there's no point getting praise for intentions. You can have all intentions in the world. It's what we do that matters. He isn't going and whipping up hysteria. Hey, I'm come to sort this out. He isn't creating an expectation. This is the phrase that, 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 that I like. He under promises and over delivers. And there is a danger for any of us who want to see change that we overpromise. Oh, I can sort this out. This will be fixed. And we overpromise. And under deliver. Under deliver. And Nehemiah says, I didn't tell anyone. I just wanted to go and, and look. He goes and he explores. He looks for himself and he goes around and he sees the state of the walls. He, he goes around Jerusalem. He's slow to jump conclu to conclusions. He makes his plans carefully and slowly. What has this got to do with change? Hang on, we'll get there. And the passage goes on and just gives us a little bit of detail about the journey that he takes around this night without telling people why. He's waited three nights to do this. He's doing it quietly. He's taking stock of the situation. He's trying to learn what is going on. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. He's keeping it to himself. He's not making a big fanfare. He isn't getting praise for what he says he's going to do. He's just having a look. And then uh, he said to them, you see the trouble we are in. He holds a mirror up. He holds a mirror up to people who have almost lost an awareness of the mess, of the brokenness, of the damage. And sometimes when we look at situations 
of people where we would long to see change, sometimes they don't even see anymore that it's broken, that that addiction is causing so much damage, that that way of behaving is causing so much hurt, that that way they are being treated is so unjust. And sometimes we can be so used to the imperfect that we fail to see the damage it's causing to us or to others. He says, look, the walls are burnt down. How do you sleep at night? How do you worship God? How free are you if everybody can come and go? Every a set of robbers, every oppressive leader can come and go and take what they want from you. There's no security. There's no freedom to worship. And therefore there is a damage to the kingship of God. This city is not declaring the greatness of God It is declaring the patheticness of his people. And he calls, as he did in in chapter one, he calls it a disgrace. It's a damage. But then he says this, come, let us rebuild the walls. It's a positive language, it's us. It's not the language of condemnation. It's not the language of you need to do this. It's the language of we can do this. It's not setting himself apart from people. It's identifying with people. We're going to try and tease out what this means about helping people change. But one of the key things is change doesn't come when we sit above people and say, you need to do this. Change comes not when we're behind someone, when we push them forward saying, you need to do this. Or we pull them saying, come on. Change comes when we are alongside and we say, we can do this. We can do this. And he inspires faith. He says, I told them about the gracious hand of God on me. I told them how miracle it is that I was let to, allowed to come here and given letters to help me. And so they begin the work. So what can we draw out of this around change? How do we help others change? Many of us here will have people on our minds and, and situations, situations at work, situations maybe in church, situations in family. How do we help that person change? Painful things, addictions, relationships that have gone terribly wrong, lack of faith or belief in God and folks we long to see. Or many of us, all of us got stuff in our own lives and we go, God, I just want to see this change and I want to see this growth in me. That's where we were praying with Menti a moment or two. So what can we learn from this passage? Firstly, that we wait and we observe. We don't rush in. We don't come in as the Messiah. We wait and we pray. He's prayed for four months. Um, uh, long, long way away with the Persian Empire, he now waited three days. We under-promise and over-deliver. We do not tell people how great things are going to be. We work with them so that it changes for them. Don't say, we don't get the praise for what we promise. We get the praise for what we deliver. And if we're talking about ourselves and change within us, then one of the things I want to say to us is that we don't expect too much of ourselves instantly, overnight. 
Uh, one of the things that you may have spotted with the way God does things, if you look at nature, there is no plant that I'm aware of, certainly not in my garden, there is no plant that I can spot growing within two minutes. That I can look at and go, ooh, look at that, do that. I know you get those videos where they put three months into 30 seconds, but that's the point. There is nothing that God creates that grows right that quickly. God does things bit by bit, slowly and steadily. Trees, facial hair, anything. It, for the ladies among us, it, it just, oh, I shouldn't say that, it just grows slowly that you don't notice it. And so what we want to see God and allow God to do within us is the slow but the solid. The small changes. I want to have more faith. I want to be more grateful. I want to be more loving. I may not spot that tonight. But if that's my prayer, week in, week out, maybe in a year's time, I will see the growth. And the point is that we don't stop. We don't say, I've arrived. I don't longer need to pray that prayer on Menti because I am the finished article. No, we keep on praying, Lord, more of you in my life. We don't expect too much. So what he does is he highlights the problem. He said, look, the, the, the place is in ruins. And when we want to change, we have to see the problem. When we want to help people change, they have to understand the problem. It's no good going in with solutions until people own the need and the reason for the solution. You're familiar with the 12 Steps program, Alcoholics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all of that stuff, really brilliant stuff. Uh, the way that was devised um, by a Christian many, many years ago, it begins with you cannot change until you realize you need to change. So whatever change we want to bring about in a place or a family or a friend or even ourselves, we have to see the pain of what not changing looks like. And that is awful. We have to see the damage we cause on other people. We have to see the relationships that we are hindering. Or maybe we have to help somebody else see the relationships that are going wrong. We need to see why anxiety is growing, where things are not right, where there isn't peace. We need to see where God isn't able to bring fruit. We need to see the ruins to change. And sometimes our job is to simply help people understand the need to change. That's part of uh, what I've hoped and tried to do over the years in leadership, is to constantly keep us moving, keep us changing, keeping us adapting, but we do that by understanding why. Why do we need new chairs? Why do we need a food bank? Why do we need to be intergenerational? Why do we need to repeat the same sermon in the evening as we do in the morning? We try and give the problem that we're trying to fix. And after he's highlighted the problem, he highlights the consequences. This is a disgrace. 
And we need to understand for ourselves and for others we are helping, what happens if we don't change? What happens to the family if this carries on? What happens to our walk with God if this carries on? What happens to our city, to our community, to our workplace if this just stays like it is? It needs to change. And then we identify with those who need to make the changes. Come, let us. Not you, it's us. It's not pushing, it's not rebuking, it's not condemning, it's identifying. This is, we're all part of this. We need to do this. We need to do this. Never in language of conflict and difficulty does the, the language of you, especially when it's attached to the word never, it doesn't work. You never doesn't work. Creates no change at all. Creates resistance and upset. What is we? We need to do this. We need to do this. And he gives the reasons. I told them about the gracious hand. He give, we give reasons about what God is doing. And we might need that hope ourselves. We need perhaps to be reminded of the nature of God, of his gracious and compassionate nature, that he is slow to anger, that he's abounding in love, that he's in the God of cleansing and forgiveness who transforms, rebuilds, and restores people, the God who makes things different. And that that is his purpose, to take what is lost, broken, damaged, and set it free and rebuild it and restore it. And that's the hope we have that we need to hold on to for our change. That's the hope we may need to inspire in others. And then we build on what God has already done. What has God already done in our lives? What is our story of of salvation? What is our story of redemption from the past? And what is God doing now? What is he doing? How does that help us change? How does that give us hope? How does that give us confidence? But one final little bit of the story. And a third guy arrives called Geshem. We know from archaeology that he was a, a, a sort of local uh, king of a desert area, a sort of um, traveling kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Peoples that move around the desert. What's, nomad, thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, he's joined in and they hear about it. He says, uh, they start to mock Sambala. Uh, Tobiah and Geshem, they mock. And they say, are you rebelling against the king? Now, why are they saying that? Because they know that the king, uh, Arti, uh, that art, has authorized Nehemiah, I'll practice it for the next time, has authorized Nehemiah. Well, the reason is, and I was reminded of this this week, that um, when we were doing Ezra a, a few years ago, there's a little part in Ezra chapter 4, which I said we'll come back to uh, later, because Ezra is, is giving us, uh, he tells us uh, of things that were similar that happened a little bit later in the story. And what he tells them is that... Um, a few years before Nehemiah and before Sambala and before Tobiah, the previous people who had been in charge of that area had written to King Art and told him, I'd said this a few years ago, we'll return to this, we're returning to it now. They told them this, they said, they're rebuilding the city, don't let them do it because if they restore its walls, you will no longer be able to get taxes or tribute or duty. 
and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Have you noticed how if you want to get elected, you need to tell people what terrible thing those people are going to do? This is untrue. It's a great empire. Of course they can collect taxes. Having a wall isn't going to make any difference to that. But they, they send this letter a few years before Nehemiah. They're untruthful. They say this city is a rebellious city, a troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. And the king replies that the city is not to be repilt until I so order. Fast forward about 10 years, Nehemiah says to the king, can I go and rebuild the city? And the king miraculously says, yes. I delayed it, but now you can go and do it, and I will give you the letters. So when they say, are you rebelling against the king, they are doing perhaps three, one of three or all three things. They are challenging his authority. Are you really able to do this? Because the king sent a letter 10 years ago saying this wasn't to be done. Even though Nehemiah has with him the king's letter saying it is to be done. But more than challenging the authority, they are challenging Nehemiah's confidence. Because they're saying really, look, the king's changed his mind before. Are you sure it's a good idea? It's all going to go wrong. The king has flip-flopped on this before. He'll flip-flop again. And you'll be in trouble because you've done the wrong thing. And Nehemiah replies, I answered them by saying, not the king is in this, the king will do what I want. He says, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. His confidence is not in the king, his confidence is in God. And when we serve God's agenda, our confidence isn't in people, it is in him. When we serve the agenda of love, of transformation, of mercy, of compassion, of generosity, of truthfulness, then whatever human beings say, God will be with us. So how do we bring about change finally? We build on what God has already done. And we're not dissuaded by the inner or the external voices of doubt. You'll never change. You're not good enough. I can never change. This is the way it is. I was born like this. Whatever it is, where we believe someone can become more gracious, more loving, more compassionate, where addictions can be overcome. Where destructive patterns of behavior can be renewed and cleansed. We're not dissuaded by those who mock and say it can't happen. But we maintain our dependence on God. The God of heaven will give us success. The one prayer you can guarantee we can guarantee God will always answer. It's nothing to do with money, well-being. It's this. Lord, help me be more like you. More like Jesus. 
filled with his fruit. More patient, more loving, more self-controlled, more faithful. God will always answer that prayer. Sheila and the band are going to come and rejoin me. I want to lead us in prayer around these two questions before we sing our final song. These two questions. What is the hope of change we want to give others? And what is the change in us we need to begin? Would you stand with me? Let's bring those two questions to God quietly and personally in our own lives. Lord, we bring to you the change we long to see in our family. Among our friends, in our school or workplace, in our street. in our nation and in our world. Lord, we bring it to you. Will you lead us to be people who can inspire change and have the faith for change, who can walk alongside and help change? Will you guide our steps? We offer ourselves to you. And Lord, we bring to you the things in our lives that we want to change. That have defeated us or frustrated us. That we know are not what you would have for us. Fill us, Lord. Help us to keep growing and to accept the slowness of change. Holy Spirit, fill us. We thank you that change is possible because we come to you, the God of grace, the God of mercy, that on the cross we are reminded that you take what is broken and damaged and you hold it, you carry it, you cleanse it. And as we look to you, Jesus, we receive your victory and we ask for your freedom.